So what exactly are the signs of a church that is no longer vital or alive? Or maybe to put it another way, what exactly does a dying church look like? Is it a church with declining attendance? That's probably the simplest answer to the question. A church can become so small that it literally goes out of existence. Or is it a church that no longer has the financial resources to keep the doors open and the lights on? And this is also true of many churches today, both large and small. In certain parts of the country, especially in communities with declining populations, you will see, sometimes see a boarded up church building that once housed a, a thriving, dynamic congregation. We've all seen abandoned church buildings with parking lots overgrown with weeds. We see them in small towns and rural areas and big cities alike, especially when a church serving one particular group of people closes its doors because the congregation can't successfully adapt to a changing community. There are a few like that right here in the Lansing area. But I think the deeper question goes to issues of spiritual vitality. Is a church that has for many years been torn by controversy truly a living church? Or what about a church that's so comfortable in its current situation that it has no room for new people to fit in? What about a church that has completely lost its vision to reach new people for Jesus Christ? If a church has no passion for the lost, can it truly be called a living church? What about a church that was once great, but has now fallen on hard times? What about a church whose best days happened to be a generation or two ago and still lives off the reputation of its past glory? Well, it seems to me that the question is easier to ask than it is to answer. After all, if the church is open for business, it would appear that something must be happening there. They probably have a worship service or two. They may even have a Sunday school, a few small groups, a choir, a worship team, some youth, maybe even a senior adult fellowship. But is that church living or is it dead? Again, it's easier to ask the question than to answer it. After thinking about it, it seems to me that only the Lord himself knows whether a church is truly alive or dead. A church may seem dead, but may have signs of life within it. Or far more ominously, a church may seem to be full of life, but actually be at the point of spiritual death. And this was the problem uh, with the church at Sardis. When Jesus comes, uh, come, uh, comes to this church, he makes a quick and troubling diagnosis. In verse uh, one of Revelation three, we read, I know all the things that you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. This may be the most damning indictment our Lord could give to any local church. And it is a comment that only Jesus could make. The church seemed alive, it seemed well, it had a good reputation in the community, it was evidently not on the brink of closing its doors. Christians in other towns spoke well of the church at Sardis. Who knows, maybe they even hosted a church growth seminar or a conference. Maybe the pastor wrote books and traveled to speak in other churches. Maybe they even had the largest attendance of all the seven churches in Asia Minor. It looked healthy. It looked alive by all the outward indicators. And it is certainly notable that G what Jesus does not mention here. The, the church does not seem to be suffering from persecution. It does not seem to be seriously infected by false doctrine. 
we find no mention of the mysterious Nicolaitans that invaded some of the church communities. There's no hint of sexual immorality in this church, nor is it a church that's warned about losing its first love. In some respects, Sardis is the most difficult church to dissect because we don't really know what was wrong here. When Jesus speaks to the other churches, he spells out the problem so that there can be no confusion. But here, we are told simply that at Sardis, things look good on the outside, but they were dying on the inside. Now, strange as it may seem, there is something that can be much worse than false doctrine or sexual immorality or trouble in the church, and that is a good reputation that is undeserved. It's like saying we're in the top 4% of all churches in our denomination. Well, what does that really mean? What if it means nothing at all? It's actually a scary proposition. If you're dying, wouldn't it help to know about it? You know, an analogy might be it's better to know about cancer even though the treatment might be difficult than to live in blissful ignorance until it's too late to do anything about it. Same is true in the church. Maybe the history of Sardis will give us a clue. You see, many years before the writing of Revelation, uh, Sardis had been one of the most important cities in Asia Minor. When Persia controlled the region, Sardis had actually been the capital city. But under the Romans, it faded into insignificance. Here we have a city whose best days have come and gone. A city living off a reputation of past greatness. Sardis had been eclipsed by other cities like Ephesus and Pergamum. It was a town living in the past and on the past, and it seemed that the church of Sardis had taken on the character of the city itself. One writer called the church at Sardis the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. Evidently, the Jews and the Romans didn't bother the church because the church didn't bother them. It was left alone because it lacked the conviction to stir the waters and make waves about anything. Here's the point. Apparently this church was active on the, in, on the outside, but on the inside it had become a spiritual graveyard. And, and that can happen. Sometimes activity covers up an empty life or an empty church. Jesus can make this diagnosis about a church because he can read the hearts and the minds of those who worship there. And perhaps that is why verse one says, this is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars, a reference to the Holy Spirit who sees all things and searches all hearts and nothing is hidden from him. All of this ought to be very concerning to us and to every congregation because this church evidently looked very good on the outside. So how does a situation develop where a church with a good reputation turns out to be spiritually dead? A few indicators might be when, it, when the past becomes more important than the present. When keeping a good reputation matters more than a bold witness for Christ. When religious rituals become an end in themselves. When talking about Christ matters more than knowing Christ. When convenience trumps sacrifice. When appearance matters more than reality. When tradition stifles every attempt at innovation. 
when personal comfort outweighs risky faith, and when church activity substitutes for a growing walk with God. See, what strikes me in, that the, in, in all of this is that these are things that are matters of the heart, and they're very hard to spot. A church that is dead will often seem quite alive, and not many churches, I don't think, would advertise themselves by saying, hey, come worship with us. We ask nothing, we demand nothing, we dare nothing, and we dream nothing. When's the last time you heard that in a church advertisement? And yet it happens. That is exactly the story of a large church that I served here in Michigan. Looked like a great opportunity, looked like a place to learn and grow, but turned out to be something very different. It's exactly what was happening at Sardis. The church had, co had come to the place where it lived to please the people in the congregation rather than God. It was a place that was more anxious about its reputation in the city than it was its reputation in heaven. So what can be done about a dead or a dying church? We get some good news from our text, from the Lord himself. In verse four, we read these words. And yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Now I like this verse because it reminds us that God has his people even in the most unlikely places, even in a church like Sardis, there were those who loved and served the Lord from a pure heart. It reminds me of an Old Testament story about the time when Elijah, in his despair, felt like it, he was the only faithful servant of God left in the whole land of Israel. And God called him aside and and, and spurred him to action by telling him that there were yet 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. You can read that story in 1 Kings chapter 19. You see, God is not limited by our small vision. This ought to give us hope for even the most troubling of church situations. Here's a truth for every one of us to remember. We're not in a position to estimate our own effectiveness. We are, uh, when we think we've won, eh, don't be so sure. When we think we've failed, let's let God decide the final verdict. You and I are as likely as Elijah to wrongly estimate both our victories and our defeats. Better to do the, our best and leave the results with God. He knows better than we do the lives that have been changed by our service for Christ. So is there any hope for a spiritually dead congregation? I believe there is, but a couple of things need to happen. First of all, the church must wake up. Look at verse two, wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Because it was located on a plateau, Sardis seemed secure from invasion. But twice in its history, invading armies had scaled the hills that surrounded Sardis during the night and had captured the city. So Christ's admonition to wake up had special meaning for them. No doubt the congregation had become spiritually lazy and their motto may have been, hey, if all's going well, why bother to post a guard on the lookout tower? The spiritual equivalent of that statement is found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 in the New Testament, which says, stay alert, 
Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And as Peter himself found out, Satan often attacks us not at the point of our weakness, but at the point of our perceived strength. And so it is for every Christ follower and every congregation. If the devil cannot make a frontal attack, he will send in wolves in sheep's clothing, or he will cause the sheep to begin biting each other, or he will simply lull the flock to sleep and then pounce with deadly force. So the church must wake up. Secondly, the church must return to Christ before it's too late. Look at verse three. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. To repent literally means to change our mind. And in this case, it involves turning back to the Lord with our whole heart. There is nothing more difficult than for a comfortable church to repent. Most of us don't change unless real pain is involved, do we? We don't pray until we're desperate. We don't see God's face until we're in trouble. We don't repent unless we think there's no other hope. When Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, he intended only to spark a lively theological debate. Little did he know that he would ignite a theological revolution called the Protestant Reformation. The very first thesis is still as true today as it was back in 1517. And it said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The entire life of a Christ follower is to be one of repentance. We don't hear that preached much nowadays, but it needs to be spoken in our generation every bit as much as it was spoken in Luther's generation. Sometimes we wrongly think that repentance is something we do when we first come to Christ and then we never have to think about it again, but that wrong-headed view of the Christian life comes from a false understanding of human nature. We all get messed up by sin and we all need to repent every single day. I think most of us are probably worse off than we think we are. We're probably guiltier than we think we are. So we all need God's mercy. On a guilt scale, guilt scale of one to 10, a lot of us might think we're eh, maybe a five or six, but we're not as bad as some of the other people we know. Maybe on a really bad day, we would rate ourselves a seven or an eight, but we hardly ever think of ourselves as a nine or a 10, do we? But the sobering fact is that even our good deeds, the things we brag about, we, our claim to being good and upright and moral and virtuous in the sight of the Lord are nothing but filthy rags, says the prophet Isaiah. We will never get better until we repent. And our churches will never get better unless we repent. We can't repent for anyone else. It's the person in the mirror who gets us in trouble. But know this, there is an implied threat here that if we do not take Christ's words seriously, Jesus will come like a thief in the night. 
We are all too aware that the news is filled with stories of home invasions in bad parts of town and in good neighborhoods. During the night, someone goes through a window in a home and rifles through everything they can get their hands on and steals some jewelry and searches through our personal stuff. And if that's ever happened to you, then you know how you felt after that, a combination of anger and helplessness. It's hard to sleep the next night because the reminders of that intruder are still there and the shock of it remains fresh in your mind for a very long time. Like a thief who comes when you least expect him, Jesus warns this congregation to wake up or he will come and the results are not gonna be happy for this church. The church at Sardis, though evidently prosperous and popular, was not ready for the coming of the Lord. The church was like the city itself. It was comfortable, it was lazy, and it was spiritually indifferent. It was in its own way a true reflection of its community. It seemed alive, but it was truly dead. Now I want you to note the threefold promise that Christ gives to the overcomers at Sardis. First he says, they will be dressed in the white robes of victory. Look at verses four and five. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not spoiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Secondly, they will have their names reserved in heaven. Again, verse five, I will never erase their names from the book of life. This is a powerful statement that assured them of their salvation. The Greek uh, New Testament uh, here translates a double negative. I will never, ever, under any circumstances, erase their names from the book of life. And third, they will be personally recognized by our Lord. I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. And so it will be when we stand before the Lord someday. No one will say, hey, that's Rod Calajane, and I wonder why he's here. Well, maybe they will, but it won't be like that because Jesus himself will say, this is my friend. There's no greater reward for the believer than to be personally known and personally recognized by our creator. And as we come to the end of this message today, let me ask you once again, where did the church at Sardis go wrong? It was a church of the living dead. It was a church that was a beehive of religious activity and mediocrity. It was a church that was spiritually dead and its spiritual condition was made worse by the fact that it seemed to be on the surface very alive. And in that sense, it was in much greater danger than the persecuted church of Smyrna or the moral morally compromised churches of Pergamum or Thyatira. It was even in worse condition than the loveless church at Ephesus. For far worse than persecution from without is dry rot from within. The church was lethargic because the people were lethargic. And that can happen to any of us at any time. It can even happen while we're attending what appears to be a good church. 
Do you remember the children's rhyme uh, that goes this way? Here's the church and here's the steeple. Open the door and see all the people. Um, You know, we are the church, all of us together, each of us individually. And the Lord is speaking to all of us today. And he's saying, wake up, shape up, repent. Remember what I've done for you. The Sardis spirit overtakes us whenever we begin to take God's gifts for granted. How quickly we can become the church of the living dead and not even know it. Maybe we should be asking ourselves, do I really know the Lord personally? Am I walking daily with Christ? Does my life reflect his values and his ways? You see, it would be better to be an all-out pagan than go through life as a cultural Christian, not really knowing the Lord. At least the pagan knows they're a pagan, but the cultural Christian thinks they're alive, when in reality, they're not. And what's important to note here is that God still loves the church at Sardis. If Jesus didn't care, he wouldn't have written this letter, and he loves us here in this congregation, and so wherever we are spiritually, as individuals or as a church, it is important, I think, for us to say, Lord, do your work in us. Wake us up. Stir us to love you and to serve you so that the world will know that we belong to you. May God wake us up so that we may always be the church of the living Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have taught us in your word to remain alert and ready for your coming. So grant that all that we do, both at home and in this congregation, would be good in your sight. Forgive us for our failures. We recognize that we are imperfect. Help us to be faithful to you. Cover us with the mantle of your grace and love and enable this church to continue to be a light in the dark world and write our names forever in your book of life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.